Hello, Bridgetown podcast watchers and listeners. I'm Tyler Staten, the lead pastor of Bridgetown Church. And I would love to invite you to consider giving to our Christmas giving campaign this Advent season. It will extend all the way through year end and we are raising funds toward three particular initiatives, Justice Allies, Justice Actions, and Bridgetown Kids. Every cent given will go to those three initiatives. You can find out much more and give at bridgetown.church give. John said to the crowds coming out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. What should we do then? The crowd asked. John answered, Anyone who has two shirts should share with the one who has none, and anyone who has food should do the same. Even tax collectors came to be baptized. Teacher, they asked, what should we do? Don't collect any more than you are required to, he told them. Then some soldiers asked him, and what should we do? He replied, don't extort money and don't accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can have a seat. We're just, the joy candle went out, and Gavin and I weren't sure what that meant, but it didn't feel good. (laughs) So he's taking care of it. If it goes out again, we'll just pray for the remainder of our time. (laughs) Uh, There's a story about John Wesley, who's a a hero of mine. He started a revival in the city of London when the church was sleepwalking. He led a church awakening that was equally about the power of the spirit and justice for the poor. Um, And this story in particular, though, has nothing to do with his leadership and everything to do with his personal life. Uh, One day, a man was riding a horse up uh, to Mr. Wesley in a hurry, and he said, Mr. Wesley, Mr. Wesley, your house has just burned down. And that had, in fact, just happened. He lost his house to a fire in the city of London. And as you would imagine, everyone around that heard this suddenly paused and all eyes fixed on John Wesley. And after a moment, he said, no, the Lord's house has burned down. Just one less thing for me to worry about. That is a true story. That actually happened to an actual person in a Western city a whole lot like this one. Randy Alcorn says, his reaction didn't stem from a denial of reality, rather it sprung from life's most basic reality, that God is the owner of all things and we are simply his stewards. That's a true story. And it's an Advent story, it's a Christmas story, it's a prepare your eyes to recognize God in your midst story. So calling out in the wilderness, that is the title for the teaching series that we're in during the four weeks of Advent. It's a phrase that comes from the prophet Isaiah that was then used in all four gospels to describe the person of John the Baptist. John's mission was to shine a spotlight on God in our midst in the person of Jesus so that no one would miss him. And you should recognize today's teaching text from last week because it's identical. 
John, a messenger sent from God, uh, came to help people recognize the creator disguised in human flesh and offered these instructions for the crowds that were eager to see him, to the plentiful simplicity, to the tax collectors, generosity, and to the soldiers, justice. What should we do then, they asked. Do you have an extra winter coat? Then share it with someone who has none. Do you have uh, enough money for two lunches? Then get one for yourself and one for someone else. Do you collect taxes for a living? Then stop ripping off the poor and collect only what is actually required. Are you in the military? Then stop gaining authority by exploiting your power, but learn contentment with your base salary. Every example John gives has to do with money and possessions. How do you prepare for the way of Jesus? How do you recognize the greatly anticipated God uh, that the very people most acquainted with the scriptures that were supposedly most prepared to see his arrival, how do you recognize the one that they missed? Share. Your money and possessions are rentals to be stewarded for the sake of others. You see, there's, there's something about John Wesley shrugging off the loss of everything. There's something about the complete absurdity of that that exposes the absurdity of our attachment to those very things. And there's something that's been cultivated within John Wesley by generosity that readied him to see and hear and receive God more deeply than me. And I guess I'm not the only one. So generosity, that is the big theme for today. And it's a subject that I would really rather not talk about. Let me explain. Uh, the Christian church was the original grassroots movement. It was led by broken people who had no credentials whatsoever apart from their own transformed lives. And the thing spread like wildfire. It's a sociological phenomenon, no matter what you make of the belief claims. But then by the 15th century, the church had become uh, corrupted because they tried to raise money by charging penance uh, or, or indulgences for all different types of confessions. The original grassroots movement was suddenly stained by financial corruption, and that stain has set like red wine on a white dress. Financial privacy is a really big deal today, and statistics show that America is among the world's least transparent nations when it comes to our money, like publicizing salaries and that kind of thing. We are some of the world's wealthiest people, and we don't want anyone knowing the specifics. The norm in our culture is you don't talk about money. You just don't. It's not polite. Well, I should say you don't talk about your money, other people's money, especially those who seem to have more than you. Critiquing their spending habits is totally fair game. But my money, my spending habits, don't touch that. You don't get it. So here's the equation that I feel as a Christian pastor. The history of financial corruption in the Christian church, a Christian church that I love and believe in and I'm giving my life for, by the way, plus modern privacy and sensitivity about finances equals I don't like to talk about money. In fact, in my life as a Christian pastor, I have preached approximately 700 unique sermons. I calculated that this week. And I've preached exactly to date, five of those sermons directly about financial generosity. That means that a little more than one half of 1% of the time that I stand in front of a room full of people eager to know more of God and open up the scriptures, we look directly into a passage that has to deal with material wealth. And maybe to you that sounds about right. But to me, that stings with conviction. 
Because in the four gospels, Jesus talked about money more than anything else except the kingdom of God. The preaching priorities of Jesus were the kingdom of God and then money, and then there's a massive drop off between number two and three. Jesus talked about money three times more than he talked about love and seven times more than he talked about prayer. Jesus talked about money more than heaven or hell or eternity. 17 of his 39 parables are directly about money. The scholarly estimate is that about 25% of Jesus' teaching is about wealth or possessions on some level. So to land at 0.5% of my teaching, I've clearly done some dancing with the text. So if we're gonna take Jesus seriously, we just can't sidestep this topic. If we're gonna say that Jesus' priorities are our priorities, then we've gotta surrender our privacy around material wealth. And if I'm going to say that Jesus' priorities are my priorities, then I've gotta get beyond the bounds of my comfort zone as a teacher to address what Jesus has addressed. So, if it's your first time here, <laughs> then I sincerely wanna ask you for grace because I'm totally aware that when a Christian pastor stands on a stage wearing a pop star microphone and starts talking about money, I'm dragging in a whole unattractive history with me. So you don't need to give me the benefit of the doubt. You do not owe me that. But I want you to know that I don't wanna just jump into this topic without you knowing that I both understand and personally feel the complexity of this topic. And if you're a part of our church family, then I need your forgiveness for choosing my comfort zone over Jesus' priorities. We should be addressing this more than we do because Jesus addresses it more than we do. And so I want to invite you today to allow yourself to be confronted by the teachings of Jesus without getting defensive. Just to let your guard down so that the God of love might be able to speak to you about your money, a topic that you and I are likely more comfortable keeping private. And if you're trying to follow Jesus without regularly asking yourself, who is really Lord over my habits of consumption and my possessions and my wealth, you're fooling yourself. This is far too big a topic for us just to keep private. So today we're gonna be all over the Bible, but I've only got one point. Your spiritual life is directly connected to how you manage your money and possessions. I wanna trace that one point through the Bible from Genesis to Revelation in these four parts. Foundations, servant Jesus, King Jesus, and then living in between. So part one, foundations. We're gonna begin in Exodus. And most of us, when we think of the Exodus story, we tend to think of burning bushes and plagues and parting Red Seas. And all that's in there. But the real drama starts when the action sequences end. After all the memorable highlights, God is teaching his people what it means to rely on him as provider. And so he gives them food every day, manna and quail, bread and meat, uh, the gluten-free vegetarians were just out of luck. Half of Portland would have been asking God for substitutions. <laughs> this is Exodus 16. This is what the Lord has commanded. Everyone is to gather as much as they need. Take an omer for each person you have in your tent. The Israelites did as they were told. Some gathered much, some little. And when they measured it by the omer, the one who gathered much did not have too much and the one who gathered little did not have too little. Everyone gathered just as much as they needed. Share food with one another. That's the beginning of the family of God. Make sure that everyone has his or her basic needs met. That's the beginning of the image of God alive in a community of people. But it didn't last long. Two verses later. However, some of them paid no attention to Moses. They kept part... 
part of it until morning, but it was full of maggots and began to smell. So some people started collecting more than they needed. Uh, What if God doesn't provide? What if I don't have enough? What if the bread and meat isn't here tomorrow? And so they started to hide away a little bit extra in their tent. But by the time tomorrow rolled around, the food had spoiled. Having food for tomorrow was not the main issue here. The issue is that God gave Israel exactly what they needed. And so to collect more than you needed was to ensure that someone did not have what they needed for today. God made saving impossible for his covenant people. Why? He wanted to free their hearts to both trust him and love one another. God freed their bodies through a series of miracles. God freed their hearts by manna, by teaching them a new economy, one where my neighbor is my responsibility. And that brings us to the edges of your field. So as the story rolls on, we get to Leviticus 19, which reads, when you reap the harvest of your land, do not reap the very edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. Do not go over your vineyard a second time or pick up the grapes that have fallen. Leave them for the poor and the foreigner. I am the Lord your God. Now this was given to the people of God as a command, as a law. Leave the edges of your property fruitful so that anyone who is wandering and hungry can find a meal at your home. Plant seeds and tend a portion of the land that you never intend to harvest. Your home should be financially structured as a place of provision for the other. It gets a whole lot more interesting when God shows the logic beneath that command. It comes in Deuteronomy 24, which uh, has the same command but frames it first this way. Do not deprive the foreigner or the fatherless of justice or take the cloak of the widow as a pledge. Remember that you are slaves in Egypt and the Lord your God has redeemed you from there. That is why I command you to do this. And then follows the exact same instructions that we just read in Leviticus. So from God's perspective, if you plant your own seeds, tend your own crops, uh, tend them and grow them throughout the summer, and then in the fall, reap the full harvest for you and your family that you have worked for, you are depriving the foreigner and fatherless of justice. How does that work? Remember that while you were slaves in Egypt, the Lord your God redeemed you. Remember, you were stuck with no way out. God generously spent himself on behalf of you. That is why I command you to do this, says Deuteronomy. Because your freedom, your property, the seeds in your garden that you're planting, all of that was won for you by God when you were entirely powerless. All that you now own is really just a rental, just resources that God has entrusted to you to be stewarded for the sake of others. So when you take a rental and use it all for yourself, you're depriving my world of justice, says Yahweh. Wow, do you see that? Do you see how different of a starting place that is for thinking about money and possessions? I mean, what if this entire community began to live like our possessions and the things we have were nothing more than than God's temporary offering for us to be stewarded on behalf of one another? What kind of changes would we make if we took hold of that uh, mindset? Uh, What kind of lives would we lead? What kind of stories would we be telling? This all culminates in this incredible celebration called Jubilee. So eventually Israel arrives at the promised land. This is the long way to destination of the Exodus journey. God then divides the land evenly among 12 tribes. There's 12 tribes in Israel, so God sections off 12 pieces of property. It's all very simple. But after that simple beginning, it gets really complicated. 
Because if you trace the story from there, certain tribes end up falling into debt while others uh, become quite well off. Those who went into debt would sell off a portion or maybe even all of their property in order to cover their debt. Now, you can't explain poverty simply today, and you couldn't then either. We're talking about an agrarian society where weather patterns and faults in the soil and rainfall and all these things beyond direct human control would contribute to wealth or poverty. So God instituted something radical called the year of Jubilee, where every 50 years, all land would be returned to its original owner free of charge, no questions asked. The economy would just reset. It's right there in Leviticus 25. In God's economy, you hold everything loosely. You hold everything with open hands. So go ahead and invest, grow your farm, do your thing, uh, own what you want, but possess nothing. Jubilee was God's way of teaching us to hold our material stuff with open hands, not closed fists. So to summarize, God's redemption plan for the whole world began when an enslaved, powerless nation was miraculously freed. God then gave them a law, a law so radically different from the way any other economy had ever worked on the face of the earth that it would set them apart as a people bearing his image. And that law included gleaning the family farm as a pantry that would be open to the hungry mouth. It included tithing, the offering of 10% of everything that you own back to God, which started with Abraham, but then was put into law by Moses. And then Jubilee, this radical reset of the economy as a practice of God's grace and protection against human greed. The law, the boring parts of the Old Testament where your Bible in a year plan always stalls out. The law was set up as a social structure differentiating God's people from every other people group on the face of the earth through generosity. Your spiritual life is directly connected to how you manage your money and possessions. One of the things you'll notice if you read the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, is that there is no such thing as a spiritual life. The compartmentalization of our lives into different sectors is a modern invention. Ask any ancient Israelite about their professional life or their social life or their spiritual life, and they would just look at you confused. And that's because all of life is spiritual. What is God concerned about? Oh, just every last facet of my being. That's it. Just the way that I treat my coworkers and what kind of tipper I am at restaurants and how I rest on the weekends and how I react when I don't get my way and my grocery shopping and the tone of the email that I exchange with my coworker. Oh yeah, and he's also into prayer and scripture and those sorts of things too. All of that is my spiritual life. And that's important because Jesus, an ancient Israelite, shared that same framework that all of life is spiritual. This brings us to part two, servant Jesus. So Advent is this month set apart in the Christian year for remembering God's arrival. The mystery of a God who is powerful enough to create all we know and experience and to discipline oppressors and free the oppressed, miraculously intervening. That God then stripped himself of all of that power to reveal his humble love in the form of a helpless infant. Jesus came to reveal the powerful God as a humble servant. And it all started with John the Baptist, 
who came to prepare the way, and his mantra went something like this, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. Now, repentance means to change one's mind and go the other way. The idea is, I have new information, a new awareness about who God is, or who I am, or what it means to follow him in the world, and that new awareness then redirects my steps. Repentance is is a new awareness that results in new action in the world. John is saying, you've received the extravagant generosity of God, so now go on living in response to that generosity. It's almost identical to remember you were slaves in Egypt, now live in response to the God who came to rescue you. Do you see these dots connecting from the Torah to the arrival of Jesus? And then in his many teachings on money, Jesus seemed to center on a couple of major themes, mammon and savings. So first we'll talk about mammon. No one can serve two masters. Either you hate the one and love the other or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money says Matthew chapter six. Now that word money, it's actually the Aramaic term mammon, which refers to more than just the number in your checking or savings account. It it means money and possessions. It was a term to, to mean wealth or riches or property. It means all your stuff. It means everything you've got. What he's saying here is that God's greatest competition for your heart is not a moral folly or a dysfunctional relationship, or a wounded past, or baggage with organized religion. It's your stuff. God's competition is your stuff. The stuff you have, the stuff you want, and the stuff you don't even know you want yet. Mammon. Jesus is drawing a direct connection between my current experience in the kingdom of God and what I do with my money and possessions. And then there's savings. This is the teaching of Jesus in Luke chapter 12. The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store my surplus grain. It sounds like the first century equivalent to like a savings and investment portfolio, doesn't it? And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. It's the rewards of a savvy retirement plan. But God said to him, you fool. This very night your life will be demanded of you. Then who will get what you've prepared for yourself? This is how it will be for whoever stores up things for themselves but is not rich toward God. And that concludes Jesus' teaching on the American dream. Now, obviously, I'm being a little bit facetious with the story. But what is this story about? It's a cautionary tale about greed. In fact, in Luke 12, 15, the very, the very verse before Jesus launches into the story, he says directly, watch out, be on guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. So what's Jesus getting at here? What is greed? Well, I believe if we let Jesus define greed for us, it would go something like this, security by my own means. So just to clarify, there is absolute legitimacy to why savings accounts and rainy day funds and college for my kids and retirement and whatever. And there's a tipping point, a subjective, not objective tipping point that's gonna be different for every last person from prudence or wisdom into greed. Greed is the pursuit of contentment, safety, rest, and security of immaterial things that I can only receive from God. It's the pursuit of those things through material gain that I can control on my own. And that makes greed an endless and destructive search. 
Money is not evil, but the love of money, greed, is the root of all kinds of evil. You see, Jesus has competition. Money. You cannot serve both God and money. According to the Gospels, uh, the things that you possess might very well be your greatest opportunity for kingdom fruitfulness. And according to the Gospels, the things you possess might well be the greatest hindrance you have to kingdom fruitfulness. And this is what makes greed so dangerous is that it's nearly invisible in the present moment, but then in hindsight, it's coloring everything. It's why Eugene Peterson called greed a parasite. It's that tiny destroyer that doctors have such a hard time even finding or diagnosing, but then when it's discovered, you realize this thing is, is causing the whole body not to be able to function properly. Greed is the long con. It's that long, slow play that you don't recognize until it's robbed you blind. Material possessions are like no other false god. They offer us security and comfort and meaning and significance and status and identity and pleasure. So if you think that you can follow Jesus and your wealth and possessions aren't a threat to guard your heart against, you are asleep to the hold that this has on you and all of the real treasures that it's robbing you of. So John Wesley's house burns down. Everything he owns. And I honestly doubt there was a sophisticated insurance system where he could file a claim. And his response to that unthinkable loss is, no, the Lord's house burned down just one less responsibility for me to carry. Yeah, but Wesley was an extremist, right? I mean, come on, that is such an impractical way to live. Well, it seems to me like there's nothing extreme about Wesley if Jesus is the rabbi that we're following. Mature, maybe, but extreme, no. What does seem apparent, though, if we're gonna be completely honest, is that we've spent the past couple hundred years of church history trying to prove Jesus wrong about the dichotomy you cannot serve both God and money. Upton Sinclair says, it is difficult to get a man to understand something when his salary depends upon his not understanding it. <laughs> See, we are the ones who have tried to invent a version of bigger barns that don't master us, a task that Jesus said was impossible. In all of his teaching though, Jesus is doing a whole lot more than just offering a stinging diagnosis when it comes to money and possessions. Uh, he's also picking up on Yahweh's instructions from the Torah to offer a way of freeing our hearts by a new economy. He does that by raising the bar of the law of tithing in the Old Testament to the grace of generosity in the New Testament leading all the way up to today. Jesus calls us up from tithing and into generosity. This is Luke 11. Then the Lord said to him, now then you Pharisees clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside you're full of greed and wickedness. You foolish people. Did not the one who made the outside make the inside also? So Jesus is talking here to temple leaders, to those supposedly aiming their lives at devotion to God, and he's instructing them on how to purify their internal lives so that they can become vessels for receiving the God that they say that they're after. But now as for what is inside you, be generous to the poor and everything will be clean for you. So Jesus makes a direct connection between generosity with money and possessions and the purity of our hearts toward God. Woe to you Pharisees because you give a tenth of your mint, rue, and all other kinds of herbs, but you neglect justice and the love of God. You should have practiced the latter without leaving the former undone. Now Jesus does not say do justice instead of tithe. He says do both. This is a call beyond tithing and into the way of generosity. 
And in the Sermon on the Mount, which is Jesus' manifesto, he seems to be replacing the Old Testament command to tithe with the New Testament invitation to be generous. In fact, in the whole of the New Testament, you will never find a command to tithing. So you're totally off the hook from that 10%. We've been set free from the law, so there's freedom in deciding, deciding what, when, and to whom we give. But Jesus did not come to abolish the law, he came to fulfill it. And the through line of the Sermon on the Mount is that Jesus is taking every Old Testament command and raising the bar. Never once does he lower it. I'm not commanding you not to murder, I'm commanding you never even to speak ill of another person. I'm not just commanding you not to commit adultery, I'm commanding you to not think lustfully about someone else in your mind. I'm not commanding you not to tithe, I'm inviting you to learn what it is to live generous. It is very, very difficult to imagine that generosity is the one area in the whole of Jesus' teaching where he intends to lower the bar rather than raise it. And as we'll see in just a moment, in the era of the early church, where all of Jesus' teaching is getting worked out in community, the practice of generosity very frequently exceeded 10%. Your spiritual life is directly connected to how you manage your money and possessions. Part three, King Jesus. So Advent is for remembering God's arrival and it's for anticipating his return. When Jesus promises to reveal the humble God of love as a powerful king who's come to rule. And the final page of the Bible is a redeemed city under the rule of King Jesus without poverty, need, or want. And generosity is a preview of that promise. In the last month, I've gotten to be on the receiving end of two stories of members from this church providing housing free of charge to someone who is in need. One to someone within this church family and the other to uh, people outside of this church family. There's an immigrant family who now has a home in Portland where their kids are growing up because of the way of generosity. And there's a young woman who was on the verge of houselessness that now has a roof and a bed because of the way of generosity. And in both of those situations, members of this community could have looked the other way or they could have counted the cost and found the financial sacrifice too high or the inconvenience too great. But instead, by stewarding everything as nothing more than a rental, they became previews of the promised future that King Jesus will bring to reign. And this week, while I prepared this teaching, I just got a flash in my imagination of a friend that I loaned money to a few months ago and it was a significant chunk of money for me at least, but I did it cheerfully because he had this dream that he was pursuing and this was a way for my family to get behind him and sponsor his dream. And then several months later, he changed his mind and shift course of what he was pursuing and he never paid me back for the money that I owed him. And this week I realized that still bothers me. Somewhere within me, this place of data has taken up residence and is somehow, however subtly, affecting my attitude and mindset toward this person. And as all that was coming up in me, I just heard the Spirit whisper to me the words of 1 Corinthians 13. If I give all I possess to the poor but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient, love is kind. It does not dishonor others, it is not self-seeking, it is not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs. And I realized, you know what, I actually don't know the details. 
I have no idea for sure if this guy should have paid me back or just followed up conversationally and offered some kind of explanation. I don't know. What I do know for sure is that I'm keeping a record. And that takes something that I intended for God's kingdom and for my freedom and turns it into nothing more than noise. Just noisy gongs and clanging cymbals. And so I, slow to learn, just began to pray for my own forgiveness, for my friend's release from the small grudge that I was holding and for the the flourishing of the good fruit that I intended in the first place. And that too is a preview of the promised future. You see, generosity, big and small, quick and slow, compelling stories and ordinary stories, all of it is a preview of the promised future. Your spiritual life from the beginning to the end of the biblical story is directly connected to how you manage your money and possessions. So how do we live in between? Well, the early church became a community that was tugging at this story from both ends. They were a community that ordered their economy with one another by the teachings of Jesus, and also a community that previewed this coming future where generosity is the only ethic left. This is Acts chapter four. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of of the Lord Jesus, and God's grace was so powerfully at work in them that there were no needy persons among them. You see, the generosity of the early church was so pervasive, it became their reputation. They were known across the entire city as people who shared. And that's not a biased look back, that's verifiable history. In the year 251, in a letter exchanged between the Bishop of Rome and the Bishop of Antioch, we read that the Roman congregation of the early church was at that time supporting 1,500 widows and distressed persons through the generosity of the community. And that wasn't a particularly awesome anomaly. That was just the pattern of the early church. The first ever church conflict happened in Jerusalem because the daily distribution of food to widows uh, needed some more volunteers. Julian the Apostate, an ancient historian who outspokenly despised the Christian church, wrote of their annoying generosity. Tertullian, another first century historian, a source for much of our history on the Roman era, wrote of the generosity of the early church as the widespread reputation carried by the early Christians. Aristides, in Roman political documents, says of the early church, they never fail to help widows. They save orphans from those who would hurt them. If they have something, they give freely to the one who has nothing. Tim Keller summarizes all of this. The early church was strikingly different from the culture around it in this way. The pagan society was stingy with its money and promiscuous with its body. A pagan gave nobody their money and practically everybody their body. And the Christians came along and gave practically nobody their body and they gave practically everybody their money. See, the early church was known for being obnoxiously generous. What's the modern church known for? According to the practices of the early church, if the hungry came into the church and they didn't have food to offer them, the entire community would go on a joint fast until they had scrounged up enough food to have a feast together. That was the practice life for the first few centuries of the community that we call family. They believed that if a child in their city starved while a Christian had a fridge full of food, that Christian was guilty of murder. Basil the Great wrote in the fourth century, when someone strips a man of his clothes, we call him a thief. And one one who might clothe the naked and does not, should he not be given the same name? 
The bread in your cupboard belongs to the hungry. The coat in your wardrobe belongs to the naked. The shoes you let rot belong to the barefoot. The money in your vault belongs to the destitute. See, members of the early church, they were not reluctant with their possessions. Material wealth had just become nothing more to them than a rental, something they were joyfully spending on behalf of others. So to pick up exactly where we left off in Acts 4, for from time to time, those who owned land and houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. Now, all the way back where we started, the law in Leviticus was what? Leave the edges of your field unharvested. Fast forward to the book of Acts, and they're just selling the entire field, bringing the proceeds, gathering it together in the church so that together the church could become good news to the entire city. The law, tithing, was nothing more than training wheels for the people of God to learn the movements of radical generosity. The biblical trajectory increases from the edges of your field to everything you've got spent on behalf of others. It is so much easier to keep the spiritual and material in separate compartments. God, you can have my prayer life and 90 minutes of my Sunday and my attitude toward my spouse. You can have my confession and my gratitude and my morning meditation, but the standard of living I decided on without consulting you, don't touch that. It's so much easier to keep the spiritual material separate, but the scriptures every step of the way force the two together. Your spiritual life is directly connected to how you manage your money and possessions. So I wanna end today massively practical because we don't just wanna romanticize generosity in the past, we want to live it in the present. So I wanna give you six implications of this biblical story, which is far too many to remember. And they don't all start with P, so the odds are massively stacked against you. So I would just say this, listen for God's invitation to you. Because I sincerely doubt that all of this is for anyone, but I imagine that something in here is for you today, even now. And I'll move through these six quickly. First, you cannot separate repentance and generosity. Most people in the industrialized West, we live with this assumption of comfort, and, and not just comfort, but increasing measures of comfort. We live with this unspoken idea that as I get older, I'll get a nicer place and maybe even a vacation home. I'll move into a nicer neighborhood or a smaller city or a less noisy block. I'll have more in savings. Most of us assume that I'm going to upgrade, move up and to the right on a steady trajectory, grow more comfortable. And none of those things I just said are bad. There is no issue with savings accounts or vacation homes or nicer places. The danger is that most of us make the assumption of lifestyle upgrade without consulting Jesus. And that has more to do with the American dream than it has to do with kingdom dreams. That means that when we hear a word, the word generosity, we tend to begin thinking about what I do with my leftovers after my assumed standard of living is fully met. But in the New Testament, they hear the word generosity and it has to do with everything they own, not their leftovers. So if we're gonna grow into people who see and hear and receive the God who showed up and shows up disguised in the ordinariness of an ordinary life, then we have to begin with confession and repentance. We've gotta take a sober, honest look at the assumptions we've made for our own comfort, our own standard of living, the boundary lines that we've drawn around our own generosity without consulting Jesus. And we have to name those in community and repent. This is the competition Jesus was talking about. The greed that takes up residence in us like a parasite, 
robbing us of full health, but is almost impossible to diagnose. We've gotta be honest with both ourselves and one another to expose the subtle grip of greed. Second implication, you cannot separate the Spirit's power and material generosity. Thomas Aquinas was once walking through Rome with a friend, and, and that friend, looking up at a gorgeous church building, said casually, we Christians can certainly no longer say to the world, silver and gold, we have none. And that was a reference to Acts chapter three. It, it's from Peter to a, a lame beggar at the temple entrance just before he's miraculously healed. And so in response, Aquinas looks at his friend and completes the story. But neither can we say to the lame man in the name of Jesus of Nazareth, rise up and walk. I cannot find a single example in biblical or church history where there was a significant outpouring of God's spirit and power apart from a culture of radical generosity. God has always worked with people humble enough to surrender everything and courageous enough to believe that he would catch them on the other side. So if you long for a palpable experience of God's presence, for an outbreak of joy, for a community so diverse that it looks like heaven, for physical healing and waves of salvation, then start by treating your material wealth like it's a rental to be stewarded on God's behalf and used wildly and freely on behalf of others. I just don't see one without the other. Three, the edges of your field are just the start, but they are the start. The law commanded Israel to tithe. Tithe means 10th, it means 10% of your income. That is a foundation, it is a starting place to build a life of generosity on. So I would just humbly suggest that if you are not currently giving 10% to start there, and generosity is, again, to raise the bar on tithing. It is to remove the training wheels and learn the freedom of this life that we're being invited into through tithing. I've been so greatly helped by the writing of Ron Sider, who speaks of, uh, who recommends the graduated tithe as a way to begin migrating from tithing into generosity. His suggestion is set a standard of living that you think is reasonable and budget your expenses and necessities, rainy day funds, savings, all of that, include a 10% tithe in that budget and then live frugally and disciplined by that budget. And whatever you have left over in your family income beyond that budget, tithe at least 10% on that leftover amount as well. That's a graduated tithe and it can be a starting place for moving beyond uh, tithing and into generosity. And scripture teaches that the local church is the hope of the world. And if you think that's a lousy plan, take it up with God, not me. It's his plan. And so for that reason, I give to the local church. But let me just name my great fear for this teaching is that God's invitation to you would be sabotaged by suspicion of me. It's that you'd be sitting here thinking this whole sermon is about some secret debt that our church has that I'm trying to find a way to cover through compelling rhetoric or it's to try to get to our Christmas giving campaign, or I've got some ulterior motive like that, and that isn't it. That couldn't be further from the truth. So look, if you don't trust me, or you don't trust this church, or you don't trust the church, don't let that keep you from giving. Give 10% to another church that you trust, or give 10% to an organization that you believe in if you just can't bring yourself to trust any church, but don't rob yourself of life because of institutional suspicion. But because as followers of Jesus, we are not commanded to tithe. We're invited beyond it. Fourth implication, generosity is sacrificial. 
In Mark chapter 12, Jesus is sitting on some steps across from the temple. He's watching people toss their offerings into the temple treasury, the ancient equivalent to the black box in the back of the room. And he saw something that so captivated him that he called the disciples over so that they could see it too. A poor widow gave two small copper coins worth just a few cents. Jesus says, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. They all gave out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in everything, all she had to live on. The highest praise in all of the Bible is given for the smallest donation in all of the Bible. Why? Because of this little phrase, out of her poverty. If you give, do you give out of your wealth or out of your poverty? Meaning, is your giving tied to sacrifice? Because it's just that, it's generosity tied to sacrifice that sits at the very heart of God's character who gave us his life by a cross. So I wonder if for some of you, you're already giving, but you're giving in a way that, that uh, costs you nothing or very little in the felt or conscious sense of a cost. And I wonder if you might be invited today into sacrificial giving, the kind that costs you something uh, deferring some other thing, some planned purchase you have or, or some habit or some experience or some indulgence, deferring something else for the sake of generosity. And I love this because it levels the playing field, right? If sacrificial giving is what gets God's attention, that means this teaching is not aimed at the wealthiest or those among us who are most established. It, it means it's for all of us. It's for those with a couple coins and those with a couple companies and everyone in between. All can tie sacrifice to generosity in their internal lives and then order their external lives to follow suit. Fifth, generosity is both blessing and formation. So generosity is blessing, right? Remember you were slaves in Egypt. We give because our hearts overflow with gratitude for all we've been given. And generosity is formation. We also give because it reforms our disordered lives and affections and aims our, our desires at true life. That means sometimes generosity feels amazing and other times it just feels like swimming upstream. A close friend of mine said to me a couple of years ago, uh, I felt God nudging me to give $5,000 away, but I honestly didn't have $5,000 to give. And then I just heard this little whisper from the spirit, if you give away the $5,000, I'll give 5,000 back. So I did it. And then three weeks after that, I was sitting in church on a Sunday and someone came up to me and handed me a $5,000 check and says, the Lord has prompted me to give you this so that you know that the promises of God are for real. Was it worth it? Yeah, of course it was worth it. Why? Because to just have received that $5,000 check would have been good, but it would not have been what it was had he not prepared his heart to receive it through his own generosity. That's what made it so good. That's what made it more than just uh, some extra money to save away, but God speaking directly into his provision. And I had to pray for permission to share this because it's honestly really personal and I'm losing treasure in heaven here, but I felt really led to. A few years ago, randomly in the middle of a church service, I just felt this prompting from God to give a one-time gift of $20,000 to the church I was a part of at the time. And uh, I don't know what that would mean for you, but that was significantly more than I had ever given. That was a massive chunk of everything that I could possibly scrounge up. And so I, I talked it over with Kirsten and together we decided to go for it. 
And the year that followed that gift came with unexpectedly high hospital bills and interest. We took on credit card debt. Our son started preschool in New York City, which was higher than any monthly expense we had ever had in our lives. And as a result of that gift, we had to move out of our apartment to downsize into a place with rent we could afford. We had to make major adjustments in our lifestyle and we had to rely on the generosity of others to make it through the next year. Was it worth it? Yeah, it really was. Why? Because over the course of that year, we gained greater freedom from entitlement. We discovered the joy that comes in contentment. And we had to rely on the church community around us that we had told plenty of stories about others relying on. And we got to be on the receiving end of people from our community paying our rent one month, paying for us to fly, uh, to be with family in the midst of a medical emergency, paying for Kirsten to go on a retreat with some other women that she was on a spiritual journey with at the time. Generosity can be a blessing where God blows you away, and it can be formation where God teaches you something through the slow grind of the ordinary days on the other side of generosity, and both are good. Finally, the sixth one, generosity is justice. The early church was primarily filled with peasants with very little to give, and they quickly became a place where widows and orphans ate daily, the poor came to find clothes, and an ab abandoned infants and the forgotten were taken in. What made all of that possible? A community of generosity. A bunch of peasants offering the few coins they could added up to all of that. Our vision for Bridgetown Church is that we would become a place where the doors of our building are open seven days a week, teeming with every expression of kingdom life. I'm talking about a place where foster kids uh, feel at home and foster families find support and where the formerly incarcerated can be counseled toward reentry, and where the elderly can be listened to and reminded that they matter and the hungry can gather for a warm meal and the houseless can find a change of clothes. And then on Sunday, the buildings swell as we tell the story that holds the whole thing together. How could all of that be possible? Only if we become a people of radical generosity. Everything God wants to do through this church can be supported by the resources within this church. But there's a direct connection between the work of the kingdom and the generosity of the people.